Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. All right, Keeping It Secure, episode five, back again, live and direct. I am your co-host, DevOps Rob. Also in the building, my co-host, DevOps Adil, say hey to the people. Yo, yo, yo. How you doing, guys? Everyone all right? I'm hoping everyone is under the weather. Obviously not. Rather, let's see how it goes. You know, the funny thing about recording a podcast is you might say stuff like, uh, is everyone all right? Uh, the funny thing is you don't really get a response or reaction. Like, yeah, I know. Mate, I, I wanted to say, yes, London. What's up? Like, hold on, hold on. That's not it. <laughs> Too focused here. <laughs> we hear a third person on the, on the building, right? That's it. It's Andy. Andy, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I am Andy Martin, CEO at Control Plane and general security enthusiast. So thank you for that. Now, Andy, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, Andy did a whole presentation at, at our London Hug event. And it what was interesting was uh, Rob and I, we were on the call just uh, viewing the whole presentation, see what the community are up to. And um, funnily enough, as you, as all the listeners know, Rob and I, we always talk about identity. We always come, everything we talk about security always comes back to identity. And then the strange coincidence, Andy comes back and says, hey, we've got this solution that's building this whole machine identity piece. And we were, we were going for it, right? And you know, Andy obviously goes deeply technical here. So don't be fooled by the position of CEO. It's a, it's a lot more technical than you and I, Bob. So it, it, it was interesting because, and, and I wanted, and I obviously asked Andy to come on, that the point was that there seems to be the notion that uh, through Andy's presentation that we understand that there's hope and that possibly a, a forward uh, path towards establishing some kind of uniform machine identity. But really... And before we can even get there, I think the point of bringing Andy in is to understand Andy's perspective of, well, let's start with, from the beginning, really, you know, what's the problem and, and how, where do you think this is going? Yeah, that is a great pair of questions. Um, the problem identity, <laughs> the problem ultimately is uh, identity is not commonly used. And instead, we like to give key material out. And so... For example, a lot of times when you bootstrap trust in a system, you will do that by giving it a privileged piece of information. Maybe that's an SSH key or a username and password pair or even a jot in Kubernetes case. The The big issue here is that that piece of key material is often reused amongst multiple different instances of a workload or indeed multiple different types of workload. That means a few things. First of all, rotating it becomes difficult because you have to simultaneously do that for all the consumers or all the clients that are using that piece of key material. And also, if that gets exfiltrated, it's difficult to find out where it came from. And also, as a standard username and password, it's impossible then to, or it confounds the principle of forensics where you try and identify where that useful piece of information came from. So what does this mean? It means post-breach or even kind of in the progress of a breach, Passwords and cryptographic uh, identities are difficult. They are, at this point, I would say antiquated. 
So the concept of workload identity takes this in a slightly different direction. It says instead of using, um, and actually there's, I'm kind of jumping to implementation specifics here, but instead of using just a straight up username and password, why not use something else to identify yourself and then generate a unique bit of metadata, which ultimately is a key material in this case that we can then use to identify ourselves going forward. So for example, if I would like to identify myself to another microservice, traditionally that would probably be in Java land at least running a key store and putting a private key um, or a public pro private key pair into that key store. That means that an application can use that for mutual TLS. It can go outbound to another TLS enabled server and say, hi, here is a certificate that identifies me. Please present one that identifies you. And as long as they've got a common root of trust, they can mutually identify each other. Where this then uh, obviously becomes difficult again is because suddenly that's PKI. And the reason people don't like public key infrastructure is because you have revocation problems. It's difficult to invalidate a certificate without using a revocation list. Now your browser and your operating system have their own, I mean, Chrome especially has its own certificate revocation list to get around this problem. But ultimately until the expiration of a certificate, it's probably trusted. So again, rotating these things is difficult. If they're stolen, they can be reused. So the dream with workload identity is we take a workload, we identify something unique about it. So some combination of metadata, for example, any given process in the Linux system is assigned a unique process identifier, a PID. It's a numeric ID. Historically, it only went up to a range of 64,000. As of the five series Linux kernels, we're into sort of a couple of billion dollars, uh, dollars, excuse me, a couple of, couple of billion integers that, uh, that comprise the total address space of a process identifier. So they're reused less often, but they're still not unique. They will get cycled. You hit the top of that range and you go back to, um, oh, I don't know, actually. You don't go back to one because that, of course, is the init system, but you'll go back to a, a lower order of the range. So then a second piece of unique identifier uniquely identifying information alongside a process identifier could be, for example, the host, the host name that the process is running on, probably also the command line invocation, maybe environment variables. That's probably too much because we've probably got enough entropy from those um, select identifiers. We can then encode those identifiers into a unique TLS certificate. What we can then do with that TLS certificate is uh, encode that metadata into an X509, that gives a TLS certificate. We've then got mutual TLS on the network, and that is the dream, removing passwords and replacing with metadata about the workload. So I, I, I have a question uh, based on uh, one of the things you said. So we talked about the, the Linux kernel and how it assigns the process ID. So would you say that part of the core problem there is um, how do you know if the process is actually the genuine process or if it's a, a rogue process or a, an imposter per se? Is that one of the big challenges that we face in that area? That's an awesome question. It's kind of multi-layered because we have not only the process itself that we're generating an identity for, we also have the attestation of that identity. So if we compromise the thing that's observing the process, well, then we can start to generate this 
these certificates for any process. And we can arbitrarily make things up. So some of the solutions that address this problem or sat in this problem space, especially uh, Spiffy Spire, that will only permit the generation of certificate signing requests. So that's, and just to lay this out simply then, we've got sort of three entities. We've got the process, we have the attester, which is observing the process, and then making a certificate signing request to the central server. Or in, in this case, the implementation might be Spire. So Spire will only permit a node attester to attest for workloads with metadata it recognizes. So it couldn't falsify a host name, for example, because it has to be registered on the specific host. Now, at some level of compromise, of course, once the Spire server is compromised, we're in a very different position. So just, just to go back to the beginning then, if we assume that the Spire server is uncompromised, the node attester is also secure, then we have the question of what is being attested to. So we do have to make some assumptions. We assume that the workloads that we are attesting are in a secure and observable space. So that could include a running Linux kernel. It could include a, a private cloud, for example, because then we'll be able to observe them from the orchestrator. We probably at this point in time cannot include IoT because it's so easy to physically compromise those devices and then potentially spoof back to a central server. There are things in flight and we have some, some ideas, but it's a different class of problem. It sounds like at this point, the attestation piece, we understand it's clear that there is a challenge, but um, Andy, obviously you're, what you're alluding to, there's hope. Uh, and what you've described thus far still um, sounds to be in a single platform. Uh, and the assumption that we're trusting this uh, attestation or at, um, node tester um, to be able to carry this out within a platform, what would that look like if we were to start expanding this uh, the notion of say multi multi cloud piece? And again, I suppose living the dream, as you say, with zero secrets. How do you trust the that attester? You're giving me a run for my money, guys. Okay. The, the question then is cross-domain trust. So this is a problem akin to the public certificate authorities and their roots of trust. So every device that I own that connects to the internet, a phone, a laptop, a television, they all have the public keys of the global root certificate authorities. Google is its own certificate authority, DigiCert, places like this. When those root certificate authorities sign an intermediary and that intermediary sells me a certificate for controlplane.io or in fact in that case i have let's encrypt generate that certificate and let's encrypt is now i think that's actually multi-signed so it's not a good example but that means that when i navigate to a website signed by one of those but one of those intermediate signing entities i've got the public key on my on my hardware which means that my hardware distributor or operating system vendor trusted it. And that is then a trust relationship that I inherit. For better or worse, we've seen some major organizations have their um, certificate status revoked because they proved they were proven unworthy. And if it's not held securely, that central signing certificate, anybody who steals it can then forge certificates in that trust domain. 
So what we have on the internet is multiple trust domains. What we're looking at here with workload identity is exactly the same thing. We have to have a root of trust for our domain, but when those domains look to trust another domain, and by that we might mean dev and prod, although probably we wouldn't want them to talk to each other. So maybe we mean my bank and your bank. Maybe the, uh, the new API legislations mean that they want to run a private trust network. Um, and of course, this already happens to some extent because people will, uh, banks will sign all of their uh, mutual TLS or all of their public certificates with their domain root of trust for the bank. So what this means is to bridge different trust domains, we need to pre-share the public key of the signing authority. And that signing authority, again, is this Spire server type thing, um, which can sit alongside Vault, of course, to actually mint the certificates. It's something that generates TLS certificates. And for multi-domain trust, each domain needs to share its keys, public keys, with the other. What are you thinking, Rob? So I guess, so I, I've been having a lot of conversations internally about, about this type of problem. Um, I, I definitely think it's not a solved problem. I think uh, we're, we're still operating in the realms of finding the best solution available at the moment until we as an industry can kind of move forward into a, a uh, I don't know, maybe like a, a, a single way of working, which is uh, cross-platform. Um, but I guess uh, one of the things that, that came up in a conversation I had earlier on today, actually, is um, a comment that was made was saying that uh, Spiffy is quite similar to uh, JWTs, except it's using X509 certificates. Um, I'm not sure if Spiffy actually supports uh, JWTs at the moment or not. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a standardized way of coding assertions into an X509 certificate in the same way OIDC does basically for JWTs. Is that kind of the way that you would interpret uh, what what we see as solutions at the moment in terms of Spiffy. Yeah, absolutely. And the abstraction for Spiffy is actually something called a SVID, a Spiffy Verifiable Identity Document. That can manifest as an X509 or as a JOT. So it does natively support, um, I guess, uh, I was going to say legacy systems, but uh, traditional heritage systems. So that means that the SVID is the identity document that contains metadata about the workload, and that can be used to generate further cryptographic information that we can then use to integrate with systems that have existing authentication requirements based upon um, either mutual TLS or JOTS. So for me, so that, that's interesting, right? And, and I get that, say, from a a multi kind of cl federated cluster, or even say, as you said, right, two banks trusting each other, so two clusters. And at that point, they trust each other's identity uh, or, or workload identity. That's great. Um, but that that still, for me, it sounds it's still kind of very specific to, uh, or the assumption here is that the the consumers of such would be uh, pretty much cloud native, or there is this kind of building such a platform up the ground. I, I, the, the point I'm trying to make is at that point, it's very kind of Kubernetes style, right? Let's let's try and put it into perspective, okay, is there a possibility, say, you know, with, with what you're saying in theory, are, are we able to say, to speak to the likes of Microsoft, Google Cloud, and AWS to say, hey, how can we enable, because uh, they're all signed jots for their, for their uh, um, 
uh, native uh, EC2 instance or native VMs, right? Um, what's what would be uh, an elegant way of say bridging those to, uh, together? And maybe obviously it has to be probably for uh, a specific tenant or a customer, and especially with banks, right? They try to go multi-cloud because most risk and compliance would probably push them towards that way. How would you, how would you have that discussion if you were say in a position to have a discussion with clouds? That's a great question. Uh, we actually contributed a little bit to the GKE implementation of workload identity um, when writing some CIS benchmarks from a couple of years ago. So yes, this is uh, it's of interest to me as a practitioner. It's probably less interesting to cloud providers as vendors with a capital V. But yes, absolutely. To the customers and practitioners, this is absolutely imperative. We already see a form of workload identity existing in the public cloud. Jeff Bezos went up in front of a Senate or a committee of some description to defend the Amazon STS v1 service because the principle by which that service operated was an outbound request from a VM on Amazon's cloud would, by some dark magic in the fabric, identify the origin ENI uh, network adapter of the request. And once that hit the metadata API, identity was established because there were annotations on the packets and the fabric layer. Uh, I'm not entirely clear on, on how that operated, but there was no authentication built into the request itself as sent. So this identified the virtual machine by virtue probably just of its, uh, its machine ID. That was then correlated to the instance profile that it ran, and that then imbued it with the privileges um, that were provided that way. So that's uh, things operate this way in, in the public cloud by, by other mechanisms. Of course, in that instance, uh, that particular mechanism opened itself up to server-side request forgery, where an unprivileged user can make an outbound uh, HTTP request and gain the privilege of the whole VM instead of a constrained privilege. Um, in fact, there should be no privilege for that, for that user. Of course, the second instance of that service now um, is bootstrapped with a token, and so it's not vulnerable to the same, the same attack. But the wider question here is, how does this form of workload identity bridge or span different infrastructure? I don't think there's any inherent incentive for a cloud provider to engage in, in that level of interoperability with different clouds. This is where, obviously, again, just repeating one solution, but really Spire and Spiffy were, uh, or sort of made the biggest splash in this domain. It's probably worth noting at this point that the CNCF's TAG Security, the technical advisory group, have performed an extensive threat model of Spiffy Spire, looking at things like compromise resilience and blast radius, uh, it's very interesting. It's under the CNCF's tag security GitHub. The point being is that deploying something agnostic to the underlying orchestrator moves things into a kind of non-dark magic realm. So it's no longer the case that we have to rely on something below our sphere of understanding or influence because we can't access the, the fabric natively, of course. We're just transiting packets over it. So instead, with something like Spiffy Spire, by issuing this identity on different clouds, we then must disseminate the, uh, the public key material for each of the workloads to identify different trust domains. At that point, we have got interoperability between workloads, 
but there's still an extension, which is if we're looking to authenticate into data stores or we're considering uh, caches or other things, and again, we're talking about um, Kubernetes cluster external services, then sometimes we need to perform uh, a proxying step. Um, again, this is where something like Vault can exchange identity for a temporary token and provide kind of glue amongst non-cloud native things as well. I think um, one one of the things I'm kind of getting from from the whole Spiffy Spire um, implementation is it, it sounds actually really good for uh, something like Kubernetes, right? Um, because essentially you have your centralized server and then you have um, agents, right? Um, and I guess in the in the realms of Kubernetes, that's that's okay. It's just what is an agent? It's it's like it's just a sidecar, or you know, it's just another container, pretty much, right? Um, but then when you start moving into VMs or bare metal, then you're talking about another process running on a machine which is dedicated to a specific workload, right? So I can well imagine that um, developers and operators that are working with those types of constraints won't be as enthusiastic about something like this. You probably just heard my doorbell going off. We keep this authentic, but hey-ho. Um, yeah. So I guess... Um, what I'm trying to say is Spiffy Spire seems to work really well for uh, Kubernetes specifically. It makes sense, actually. Um, I, I believe it's it's Joe uh, Beda or Beda. Uh, I don't know if I'm uh, butchering his name, but he, he's one of the main people behind the Spiffy and the Spire project. Um, and obviously uh, very, very big in the Kubernetes world. So it makes sense that it's very, uh, you know, uh, thoughtful towards those types of workloads but uh, can you see how something like this can translate to other platforms for hosting your workloads with the same type of ease per se yes indeed um it's worth mentioning i guess that joe bader initially um i think brainstormed spiffy at google based upon some of the uh, internal production identity practices they had there and it was one of his propositions for starting what became Heptio. Obviously, Heptio was uh, the preeminent Kubernetes consultancy, and now most of that team are at VMware. Um, but yes, he certainly believed enough in this idea to, um, to, to, to at least propose it in, in that domain. The question of how this identity or workload identity propagates to VMs is, is a great one. Um, perhaps just starting back with Kubernetes, as you say, the initial implementation of Istio shipped a spiffy implementation. And by that, I mean, it did not go the whole hog to uh, perhaps use a very British expression. It didn't go the whole way. Instead of having attestation back to the workload, it used the service account to kind of piggyback on the identity that Kubernetes already gave to workloads. This is a positive and a negative. Of course, if we're using the default service count, then we have uh, a lot of instances of the same theoretical identity um, and the same certificates, but actually a well-deployed application um, would have a dedicated service count per workload and therefore a different certificate and a different identity generated for, for that mutual TLS connection. So yes, initially, Istio is based on Spiffy, and and therein being the first integration, yeah, as you say, perfectly demonstrates the cloud nativity, perhaps, of the um, of the technology. 
moving into a VM-based environment, it's a question of what then is a workload. And a workload is a very abstract term. In my mind, it can be one instance of a cookie cutter replicatable application. So a good example, of course, is the Kubernetes deployment. A pod is a workload amongst many instances of uh, the replicas of that deployment. So you have one workload or 100 workloads, but they're all the same thing. Fundamentally, they look the same. You could also argue that within a pod, each container is its own workload. It's self-contained. It's still duplicated many times. You could then also, from a sort of larger systems perspective, argue that a VM is also a workload. Depending upon the conceptual, oh, not conceptual, but depending upon the logical activity it's performing within its architectural domain if you have a load of web servers and then a load of database servers well that they're, they're workloads in their own right so now that i've thoroughly confused conflated and, and otherwise distracted from the question if a vm is to be assigned an identity at what level do we want to granularize that identity the easiest way of doing it is to say let's give one identity to the whole vm because we can use a unique identifier from our cloud provider, like the machine ID. Yeah, uh, that like be a the, the... Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and you have that one unique piece of information already, and that's sufficient. There's already a guarantee that the cloud provider has enforced uniqueness on that identifier. So we already have something unique that we can encode. We know that the attestation of the identity comes from the cloud orchestrator, so GCP, uh, Google Compute Engine, or Elastic, the Elastic Compute Cloud. Is that what ECT stands for? I think it might be. Um, you know, after all these years, I've never actually known that. And you have just blown my mind. Not <laughs> enough. I've been using it for years. It's, it's Elastic Cloud Compute, but yeah. Elastic, oh, very good. Um, yes, blast from the past. So we use that uniqueness to generate the identity, to generate the certificate. The question comes then, is the VM, is the VM's computing power subdivided across workloads with different data classifications, with different responsibilities? Well, then it's probably not sensible to reuse the same identity. And then we get into the question of deployment, as long as the tester is secure. So running as root where other workloads are not, we have some sensible division. If we're in a situation where our workload needs to run as root and the attester runs as root, we're into fuzzy security space, perhaps. So do you think you touched an interesting point there, right? You talked about, um, I know you use the example of VM here, where the cloud providers already done a lot of the heavy lifting around testing that, uh, that uh, VM identity. But again, because we're talking about VM, it, it, inherently, the uh, a VM could have multiple workloads, therefore it's not necessarily a great idea. But let's move, but anyway, that piggybacking piece is an interesting concept because now what we're saying is essentially an RDS endpoint is a workload, an S3 bucket is a workload, right? Or, or, or BigQuery in GCP. And those can be granular to the point where actually this is specifically for an application, right? So if we were to, if I was to now say build that, what you just mentioned about the piggybacking, where the cloud providers have already done that, are we then essentially saying that Spiffy or the likes of uh, uh, using, again, maybe Vault or anything else to be a good orchestrator for both establishing or creating workload identities, but also 
trusting the other cloud entities and bringing them together. I mean, ultimately, Adi, I think the point I'm trying to get to is that as as a as a former enterprise user, right, uh, um, consuming a multi-cloud, I would love to see a day where I can natively go into GCP, create an IAM policy, and natively add an AWS RN ID as an IAM member. How how far do we, how far away is that? On the assumption that cloud providers, as you say, would work together. I think it's. Uh... Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of a kind of metal festival wall of death. It, it's probably that far <laughs> apart. Whoever comes out of that final, yeah, final cloud defying, defining escapade. Um, currently, there is a lot of token exchange and proxying required. And ultimately, in this case, we're looking at delegating identities to people via the workflow of identity and... Um, yeah, really in that case, I can't see another solution, uh, he says. Nothing immediately springs to mind that is not just placing the key material for those roles inside something like Vault again, authenticating into the specific secret engine with a spiffy identity, and then verify, of course, internally, that's what Vault will do for you, verifying that you can utilize those credentials and then gaining access to them. An interesting facet of uh, the potential of adding Amazon resource names or numbers into uh, GCP would be that the two systems then become uh, less distributed, of course, and potentially a failure in one could impact the availability of the other, which would be exquisite and truly entertaining. <laughs> Sounds like a movie, right? <laughs> it does. So you, you mentioned uh, essentially bringing Vault into the fold. Um, uh, maybe putting your key material in Vault, but then that introduces um, that that whole secure introduction of Secret Zero challenge, right? Which I understand you're trying to tackle that by using um, Spiffy and Spire. But let me riddle you this one: I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard on a previous episode um, an idea that I've been floating around for a little while now. Um, but essentially, uh, speaking about console specifically, right? Because as I've learned more recently, some of the things console uh, is capable of doing, not all service meshes out there uh, have the same capability, right? But in console, uh, we have the ability to uh, register our services. Um, I guess there's an assumption that attestation has, has been performed before a service is registered. And as a result, uh, inside console, we can then control which services are actually authorized to communicate with other services, right? So we can turn around and say a database as a, a service mesh uh, piece, a service mesh service, uh, can be spoken to by a specific API, API A, for example. But uh, API B is not allowed to speak to it, and we can have intentions that way. So it, it led me to the thought that if people are obviously trusting the identities that are inside uh, console in this case, uh, would you trust console to act as an identity provider seeing as it seems to know about your workloads, right? And the reason why I say uh, console might be a little bit different to other service meshes out there is because it, it doesn't, you know, there's no enterprise like having to be in a container or on Kubernetes to, to use console. It can be a, a, a process running on a VM or on bare metal. Uh, it's entirely up to you. I think it's just a bit more um, broad in terms of range, right? So 
with that in mind, I, I have to ask every guest who, who has any opinion on, on machine identity, because this is an idea that I, I really think could have some legs, right? Using your service mesh as an identity provider, right? What do you think about that? Interesting. Okay. Um, I guess I should caveat first by saying that we traditionally will threat model everything before forming an opinion. So uh, I, I will go off the cuff as much as possible. So, so, so while we have network security by virtue of the service mesh and identity stored within it as well, traditionally they'd be separate things. And of course, service mesh is, is blending those slightly. Um, I guess the ease with which one could falsify their identity into the mesh, that we, sh we should be okay there because that would compromise network security as well. I guess if I could trick the mesh into giving me an identity that I could then use to authenticate with an external service, which was then using it as an IDP, we'd have to consider it. I guess what I'm trying to get to is would the compromise of an agent of an instance of console um, allow us to compromise the entire console IDP in that case? And just thinking about the, the care and attention, theoretical care and attention that we apply to active directories or uh, any sort of centralized federated authentication store, it seems to me that a distributed console intrinsically would be harder to secure. But apart from that, which is my tinfoil hat perspective, I don't see why not. Yeah, but that's, that's on the, your concern here, right? Is on the basis that actually someone it can impersonate that VM or can hack into this VM that has a console agent that uh, has the ability, has the IAM or permissions to be able to console, uh, register itself as a service and inherently access anything the intentions allows it to do, right? Uh, and this is the concern that everyone shares. But if you think about it, uh, a human identity provider like Okta, Azure AD, they're all, uh, uh, we're all trusting them to attest the human identity. Um, and at that point, we, we we don't go that far in terms of is it because of the multi-factor authentication and the ability of that attestation? Because if we're saying, and let's put console to a side or, or multi-cloud provider to a side, right? Because the concern, Andy, that you're saying here, right, is no different if we were solely within GCP and we allowed an IAM permission from one VM to another or one VM to, say, a bucket. The, the, that risk or, or rather that concern doesn't go away unless we're saying actually any access to that is completely gone from a human perspective and and the workload placement to a VM or workload placement to a Lambda is, uh, do you, you see what I'm going with? It, 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 you seem to kind of push it back as much as you can. The concern seems to then kind of just go more outwards and outwards to the point where actually the actual orchestrator itself that, is that trusted? I think the major difference is that if we're dealing with VM to VM um, communication via IAM roles, they hit a remote endpoint to validate in the same way that Okta does, for example. Um, I'm just wondering, and it's purely speculative, if I was to compromise a node with a console agent on, and it, it's potentially the same for, for Spiffy Spire, of course. I was just about um, to head on to that as well, actually. Yeah. But you, you've, you've, you've nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> then who can I mint an identity for? Who, who can I become with that node level access? And I guess there's still... Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're in the same kind of space. Yeah, I don't think I know enough about console's architecture to know what the kind of blast radius of compromise would be. 
but certainly the mitigation for that from a spy perspective is to ensure that the node tester can only generate things that the central server expects which i'm sure but, isn't too difficult to well the key word they, there you used was blast radius right it, 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 there's two things that obviously what rob's trying to get at is okay we still we want to uh, solve this secret zero or this kind of complete attestation uh, uh problem but then in the absence of that we accept that there's a risk of impersonation therefore and this is where the principle of least privileged access makes sense and then the understanding of okay okay someone can access a vm but that's why you reduce the permissions uh, or, or what it can access and i think this is where everyone is missing or everyone seems from a security compliance perspective i think like we're not asking that question so what if someone can access a network right and reason why i say that because it should come down to say well if they have minimum privileges then the the, the the damage impact is minimal as well. I mean, but come back to, I, I think I digress from what Rob's trying to get to, but yeah, I just wanted to add that before I hand it back to Rob. And just, just to kind of throw it in there. So um, console actually under the hood is using uh, a small part of Spiffy, right? Um, and I think it's literally just using the uh, spec on top of the X509 uh, certificate. So that's how, I think that's how it's doing the mutual TLS between the different services, right? Which is kind of what led me down the road of this. When I, when I was forming this idea in my head, I didn't even know what Spiffy was. And when I started looking under the layers, I, I, I learned that we were using this and started looking to, into it into a bit more detail and... Yeah, so I think uh, that the, the comment you made that it's kind of in the same space. If you take this uh, this idea, and let me just be clear, this is just my idea. This is not like Hashicorp's position or anything like that. This is not what we do on this podcast. We literally just talk authentically, right? Um, this is kind of why I, I, I have to agree. It is kind of operating in the same space, and it's, it's kind of giving people another option, if you'd like, to to um, trust something else. But it always comes back to that same thing, right? You have to trust something. I, I can't, though I'd love a world where we didn't have to really delegate that type of trust. Like, you know, the whole zero trust thing is is about trusting nothing and verifying everything. Ultimately, to verify something, the verification piece itself has to be trusted, right? So it's about what you trust. So I guess uh, where, I'm, where I'm going with this is, with with an idea like this, right, and like I say, like it's, this is all speculation anyway. The the whole idea is speculative. Do you think that it would move us forward as an industry, or do you think it's uh, more of the same of what we've already got? Well, awesome because I didn't quite dig into console enough to realize the similarities between that part of the implementation. Um, I do think it's moving us forward, and the reason why is. We do have to trust something, and inherently, life is built on trust. Human interactions, the, the uh, everything that we deal with, especially the internet. So we must have these trust relationships. And of course, traditionally, that was people meeting up to exchange their public keys in person, so you actually knew it was the person's keys. These days, we, uh, we have things like Keybase, which give us more of a social proof based upon multiple other factors and accounts that people have. But they're still keys with long-term expirers or expiration dates. What we do right now as an industry in the main is inject a secret that we then use to unlock further secrets, etc. The reason that workload identity is so much better than that is because it can issue an identity with a 30-minute timeout. It can issue a certificate that will die. It will no longer be valid in 30 minutes. 
the length of the certificates uh, and the algorithm is in boil the ocean territory, which means that the amount of computing power required to brute force these keys would uh, cause a serious imbalance in the already quite disturbed temperature of our dear Gaia, and therefore the oceans would start to boil off because we were using so much power. So even in the event of compromise, even if somebody's able to get remote code execution into my workload, grab my keys or dump them from memory and exfiltrate them, if they can get back to the endpoints that I am communicating with, they only have half an hour before they need to re-request that certificate or, or re-steal it, if you like. Now, if they've got persistent access, that will not prevent them from perpetuating that access and continuing to abuse it. But it does mean that the key is not then lost and we've got a guaranteed one, two, three, however many months of usage of that stolen key material. So it doesn't solve the issue of what happens if somebody gets their fingers into the cookie jar, uh, to kind of mix metaphors by accident, but it does mean that the cookie will vaporize in a, a steaming, burning conflagration within half an hour and they'll have to go back. That increases our opportunities for detection. Hopefully we are more likely to see somebody who is on the half hour regularly performing the same action than we would with one-time exfiltration of that data. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, one, one of the main reasons why I was, I was really excited to get you on the show was to kind of have this discussion about machine identity. And obviously we saw the demo that you did that the, the London hug, um, and it was centered around that literally while that was going on, a deal and I were slacking each other saying, we got to get these people on, like they, they, they have ideas on this stuff and, and ultimately we want to hear other people's ideas. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad we're able to get you on. Um, this episode has been, do you remember back in the day we, we used to have this saying, uh, was it J bots, which was just a bunch of discs, Well, this episode is like just a bunch of Londoners, like it's like J ball, something <laughs> like that, right. Um, it's been absolutely great, um, having you on, uh, I'm going to throw it over to Adil just for some final thoughts uh, and then we'll throw it to you for some final thoughts on the episode. And I think we're going to have to continue this conversation because I think what, we, what we've what we established so far is, I, I think, maybe even just between the three of us, I think we have a very similar understanding of the problem space. Uh, I think we all understand that we are very far away from a good cross-platform, cross-cloud solution. And I think the only way we're going to get closer is by continuing these conversations and, you know, just having a, a bit of diversity of thought, right? Um, so we definitely need to continue these conversations. Uh, so that's kind of my final thoughts. I'm going to throw it over to my co-host, Adil, a.k.a. Robin. <laughs> Thanks, Batman. Yeah, absolutely. You know what it is, right? Is we've barely scratched the surface here. I mean, even though we, we, we've been digging into the weeds around the identity problem, but if I was to, and I tend to always try to zoom back, zoom out a bit, right, is that if the identity is solved, right, that, it, it, there's so many layers of impact it has, right, and, and the unraveling. So if, my takeaway is that, you know, even why is it important to understand this identity problem? Why is it important to resolve this kind of identity, uh, uh, multi-platform identity issue is because in essence, and one of the key, key takeaways I would like listeners to understand and realize is that potentially having a good identity story means those traditional controls around networking, the traditional controls around even file uh, file permissions and all of those stuff, right? Ident networking in itself is a, was a form of identity, right? 
all of that goes away in essence or, or in theory, right? It would mean that they all become redundant. Um, so my takeaway here is that really it, we need to dig more deep around this identity issue, but I, let's keep the the context around the the positive uh, impact it has uh, around the governance and uh, access control in it, in essence. Uh, yeah, back to Andy. I, I suppose you know if you have any last uh, key points and takeaways that our listeners would need to take away. I think that's a great shout. Um, we began with identity at layer three. What IP address is it coming from? That's who we trust. That's how our firewalls configured. That really bizarrely for so long maintained the form of identity that we decoupled with cloud native. Because all of a sudden we've got a software defined network churning IPs really quickly. And um, yeah, we had to reimagine that. So we've moved identity from layer three to layer seven. I mean, you could argue that TLS is layer five because it's session-based, but let's call it application. We were only able to do that because I guess we got much better speed encryption on CPUs. And instead of having to offload TLS to sort of dedicated boxes, we were able to do it all in process again, finally. So the hardware advancements have I guess also some there, there is more encryption in the Linux kernel as well, more, more decryption support. But those things have allowed us to move to layer seven. What that means now is, as you say, we're unpicking all these historical bits. Uh, one of my favorite places that this is being used at the moment is in CICD. We're doing a lot of work around software factories. And the software factory is a Department of Defense kind of endorsed pattern that essentially builds pipelines to build pipelines. So it, it turns CI, instead of being a snowflake, single instance or a couple of instances that cannot be touched, they cannot be secured, they, they, they cannot be compromised because they contain all the secrets. Instead, it turns them into repeatable and easily cookie cutterable uh, templates that can build themselves. Of course, once we're into this kind of domain, workload identity makes an incredible amount of sense, especially to reduce the blast radius of compromise of a build system. So there's plenty of activity around there right now. Again, part of uh, a project with the tag security team that are building a reference implementation there. Um, the production identity piece is as well really, really fascinating to me. It started with Istio a few years ago, a really bumpy ride, um, I would say, to obviously get Istio deployed properly, but the underlying technology and the attestation um, style uh, is, is definitely here to stay. There's a great book called Solving the Bottom Turtle, which relates to the journey that the, uh, the Istio and the Spiffy Spire team uh, at Cytale actually went, went on to. And then I guess my goal for the space is within the next couple of years, I would like to be able to remove passwords. Now, that is a grandiose and uh, probably far-reaching ambition, but ultimately the removal of passwords will move us into a position where we de-risk a whole class of attacks. We de-risk people committing passwords to GitHub because there are no passwords. It's a function of where you're deployed and who deployed you and everything that goes before that to get through secure pipelines into production systems. And some of the work that we've been doing is around not only linking Spiffy Spire uh, in with Intoto, 
which is some great work done by a team at Boxboats, now at TestifySec. Uh, also looking at how to ephemerally generate keys for signing. Um, again, th there's a lot of work done by ChainGuard and, uh, and Cosign, which do ephemeral key generation. Not quite in the same space, but still, still the nature of uh, ephemerality. Um, we've been doing a lot of work around orchestrating Vault such that uh, there is, not only is it linked to the Spiffy Spire server in order to generate identities and mint certificates, uh, but, but also to put a management layer in front of it so that a very large kind of 40,000 developer plus installations, there is some consistency in force before you get to the API. Again, all deeply intertwined with Spiffy Spire. I love the space, love the topic, and uh, would love to talk to you guys about it again in the future. Yeah, for sure. Andy, where can listeners uh, reach out to you? Uh, where can they follow you? I am on Twitter at sublimino.com. Uh, I don't have a SoundCloud, but I did just write a book. If you would like to know more about hacking Kubernetes, it is out on O'Reilly. It's also um, Control Plane have sponsored the first four chapters of the book at controlplane.io. You can just download a PDF there as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I went to KubeCon US. I'll be at KubeCon in Europe. It is fantastic to be back vaguely within touching distance of people. So uh, yeah, really very enthused. I'll be around London um, at various events over the next few months. I'm super excited. And Rob, as Rob said, right, this is just the beginning. And I hope this is the beginning of numerous conversations between the three of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, we will probably get you on again as the conversation evolves. Um, we hope to involve you in the conversation just generally uh, going forward anyway. Um, so yeah, thank you once again for coming on. Uh, to our listeners out there, I want to thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you found this enjoyable and we will catch you on the next episode. And until then, peace out and take care of yourselves. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil. Be sure to join us next time. 